Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 28, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, From the fig tree learn its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> the pastor and, and theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, God does not give us everything we want, but he does fulfill his promises, leading us along the best and straightest paths to himself. So today we have before us four verses Four verses that have been hotly debated ever since the 19th century. And the fundamental question that is raised with these verses is what is Jesus referring to in these four short verses? Is he referring to the destruction of Jerusalem or is he talking about Christ's final triumphant return? And the truth is there have been many sincere believers on both sides of this debate and there are a number of issues to consider, like the fact that Jesus talks about both of these events in chapter 13. Jesus clearly talks about the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 5 to 23, and he clearly talks about his return in verses 24 through 27. And then there's the issue of the, the two remaining sections of chapter 13. Right? I don't know if you realize it, but they communicate the same theme. In both of these two remaining sections, verses 24, 28 through 31 and 32 through 37, which is what we'll look at next week, Jesus is emphasizing the importance of watchfulness. He's talking about being watchful, which means these two sections, these last two are related to one another. But then you realize that watchfulness has been a running theme throughout all of chapter 13. If you remember, Jesus made a point to stress the importance of being aware, and he used the same expression, the Greek expression, blepo, three times. He said to be aware of false teachers. He said to be on your guard for those people who are going to arrest you and deliver you to the authorities. He said to be on your guard because I've warned you and told you what's going to happen ahead of time in Jerusalem. This theme of being aware and watchful continues to be emphasized in these last two sections. In today's text, Jesus is going to use a metaphor of the fig tree, which is symbolic of what they're to be watchful for there and then. And then the next section, Jesus is going to use the metaphor of a servant who is busy working, watching for the return of his master, wanting to be found being faithful. Now, with that being said, we're going to spend more time talking about the call of Christ on his disciples and us to be watchful. It's an important thing to talk about. But we're going to talk about that next week as we explore the final section of chapter 13 in verses 32 through 37. But what about this question? 
What event does Jesus have in view in this text? Well, today we're going to talk about that. We're going to walk through this text, verses 28 through 31, and we're going to answer the question of what event Jesus is referring to here, because I believe after studying the text, the answer will be clear. But understand, I want you to hear me. If after hearing me explain this text and that you don't agree with me on what the conclusion is that we should come to, that's okay. This is an area that we can have a lot of grace for one another. Whether Jesus is talking about the destruction of the city or his final return in this text right, is not a salvation issue. Being wrong about this and not agreeing with me doesn't make mean that you're not a Christian. It just means that you're wrong, and that's okay. <laughs> now with that, I want you to know, right, we're actually not going to spend a lot of time on this question. Because this question is, is really not even the important part of this text, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, we should be watchful, and yes, we should seek to understand every word. But there's something in this text that Jesus says that we desperately need to remind ourselves of today. And there's something that we need to understand and really build our lives on moving forward. There's something in this text that is timeless and foundational, and that is verse 31. And we'll probably spend the most of our time talking about that. But before we jump into that, let's just answer the question. Let's just get to the issue. Is Jesus talking about the fall of Jerusalem, or is he talking about the future end of him returning in glory? Jesus said in verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Jesus opens up with this section coming back to a metaphor, the metaphor of the fig tree. And he says you need to be observant because you need to know that when the fig tree produces its leaves, the way that you, the way you know that, when you see that, you know that summer is close, you will also know that something is about to happen when you see the signs that are visible. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now why, now this right here, is why context is really, really important. Because I have heard people say, and defend the idea, that this text is a prophecy concerning the rebirth of Israel in modern times. That this right here is a prophecy of the rebirth of the nation of Israel today. Because the fig tree in the Old Testament scriptures does represent Israel oftentimes. And so the theory kind of goes like this. The fig tree budding and putting forth its leaves is an image of the rebirth of Israel. And that was fulfilled in, in when the nation of Israel was born, May 14, 1948. Which means Israel becoming a nation is this sign, which means this text is about the future, which means then the time for Christ's return is really near. Is kind of how the logic goes. Well, unfortunately, there's actually a lot of problems with that understanding. And not, not the least of which is it doesn't really fit the context. Specifically, when Jesus says in verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Now, there are a number of explanations and theories to try to, that, 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 that try to say that this generation, right, there, there's some that say that means a future generation. Some will say that, hey, that means humanity in general. Some people will say that it means the Jewish people collectively. But the problem is 
is it just doesn't make any sense in light of the context. It's really unnecessary given the context. It's actually the hardest kind of way to interpret that text. There's nothing in the language to suggest that Jesus is saying anything else except the current generation at that time that he's talking about. Which, by the way, in Judaism, in that culture, is about 40 years. Right? You see the repeated generation kind of idea, 40 years, uh, like when the, the Jews wandered the desert for 40 years. An entire generation was wiped out before they could, they could go into the promised land. 40 years is, was typically a Jewish generation, which, by the way, within 40 years of this moment... This prophecy would be literally fulfilled in AD 70 with the part about Jerusalem falling. So in light of that, right, then how do we explain the metaphor of the fig tree? Well, remember, Jesus rode into Jerusalem at the end of his ministry in Galilee, and he rode into the back of a donkey proving that he is the Messiah and that he is, in fact, the king. And he came into town, and the first thing they did is he surveyed the temple and went back to Bethany, and what happened on the very next day? This is like four days before. What happened on the very next day? Jesus encounters what? The fig tree. It's in leaf, but he curses it for not bearing fruit. And he does this on purpose. He does it as a visible parable of the judgment that is coming upon Israel, upon its leadership, and upon the temple. Because the fig tree, as we have said, represents Israel. And in the next day, the disciples noticed that the tree was withered away all the way to its roots. Jesus' word came true. The fig tree was a picture of God's judgment that would fall upon Jerusalem. And again, remember, this is like four days before this moment. And so the cursing of the fig tree would be fresh in their minds contextually. And so, yes, right? when he talks about the fig tree, he is talking about Israel. But he's not talking about her rebirth. He is talking about her coming judgment that he has been emphasizing and talking about. And and it really has been the theme of all of 11, 12, and 13. And so notice he says, So also, when you see these things take place, you will know he is near at the very gates. Well, what things taking place? What things has he been talking about? Well, he's been talking about future messiahs rising up, future fake false messiahs rising up. He's been talking about the gospel going to the end of the known world and the Roman army marching towards Jerusalem. And he said, when you see these things, you will know that he is near at the very gates, which again is a reasonable question for us to ask is, who is he then that he's talking about? Well, the Greek actually, when you look at it, is actually ambiguous here. It could be rendered either way. It could be rendered either it or he. It or he. Now, some translations will actually render it as it. When you see these things, know that it will come near at the very gate instead of he. And some scholars say, well, this is referring to the Roman army outside his gates, that it is near. Now, on the other hand, others will say Jesus is referring to a he, not an it. He's talking about a person, which again then could mean a couple of things. It could absolutely mean the son of man. It could also be in reference to the abomination of desolation, because if you remember, Jesus referred to that in verse 14 as a he. Verse 14, he says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be. And so he, or it, right? whatever he's referring to isn't actually clear to us 
2,000 years later. But the truth is it doesn't even matter. Because regardless of whether Jesus is talking about the Roman army or the leadership of the Roman army or even the Son of Man himself being near the gates, regardless of that, the result is still the same. Jerusalem was destroyed. That was the net result. Jesus' prophecy of Jerusalem came true. And the fact is that the city was destroyed by the Roman army. But understand, it wasn't just a random historical event that happened. This was an event that was ordained by God himself. The destruction of the city is ordained. It's the ordained judgment of God upon the nation of Israel. It was God himself who destroyed the city. The Romans just happened to be the instrument that God used in his hand. Let that sink in for a moment. And if you say, well, that doesn't seem right. Well, think about this. Think about the crucifixion. He was arrested by the Jews and put on the cross by the Romans. But make no mistake, God the Father is the one who killed God the Son. God ordained it in eternity past. God planned it. God executed it. Remember the words of the prophet. It pleased God to crush him. The death of Christ was ordained in eternity past. It happened by God's divine plan and will. And God's judgment was poured out on his own son for us. The Jews and the Romans were just willing instruments in God's plan. It was still God that did it. It's the same here. Whether Jesus is talking about the Romans or God himself being at the gate, the result is still the same. God's judgment is poured out on Israel through the Roman leaders in the Roman army. And so when Jesus says this generation will not pass away until these things happen, that makes the absolute clearest sense in light of the context. All the pieces fit cleanly together. And so it's very reasonable to conclude that Jesus in this text is talking about the disciples being watchful for the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which happened, and they were watchful, and they were spared. Not to mention, as we've discussed before, the destruction of Jerusalem is the template for future events. Right? And so the call for watchfulness is still relevant. And furthermore, the next section of text what we're going to see next week seems to be more in line with Jesus talking about the distant future. Right? In the text, he's going to tell, he's going to talk about watching for the return of the master. That really fits the future. And not only does he say to be watchful, but he also then says, no one knows the hour or the day. Not even the sun knows those things. So today's section is about the fall of Jerusalem, and the next section is about the future. And so that's where we are. That's the answer. And again, if you don't agree with me, that's okay. You're free to be wrong. I forgive you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But with that out of the way, <laughs> I want to draw your attention to verse 31. Jesus concludes this little section on being watchful for the sign of the coming destruction of Jerusalem by saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let me say that again. Heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will not pass away. Have you really thought about what Jesus is saying here in this text? Have you really spent time meditating on what he's expressing in these few words? I have been a train wreck all week thinking about this. Because the implication of what Jesus is saying here in this one statement is more devastating and more uplifting than you can possibly imagine. What Jesus is saying here is if you fully understand it, it would shake you to your very core, but at the same time it would give you a hope that will never fail you. Jesus says his words, he says in his own words, he says clearly heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. He's not saying just this planet in the sky is going to pass away, by the way. He's saying the entire cosmos is going to pass away. All of creation will pass away. If that doesn't make you shudder, then you really are not hearing what he's saying here. I want to understand this verb that Jesus uses here, to pass away, also means to become vain, or to become void, or to pass out of sight, or to pass out of existence. Jesus is saying that the heavens and the earth, the entire universe, as we know it, at some point will expire, and it will be no more. And I want you to know, he's not just using a metaphor here. This is not symbolism. He's expressing literal truth, and we can see that by the language. He's saying it will happen. Because again, this verb that Jesus uses here, is, it is future tense, but it's in what's called the indicative mood. And I know that your favorite subject in here is Greek, right? But, but what this means for you and me is this event, even though it's in the future, it is in the indicative mood, which really means is the event is settled. It's a settled reality. It is, it is a sure thing. Jesus is saying that it will happen. It is certain to happen. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It will happen. That's the emphasis of Jesus' words here. And he's saying that heavens and earth will absolutely, positively, without question, at some point in the future, be no more. Think about what he's saying for a moment. Every, all of creation, every atom, every subatomic particle, Everything that you see, everything you can measure, everything you can feel and hear and taste and touch, every bit of it will pass away. All of creation will come to an end. Why? Because it is temporal. It's temporary. It's not eternal. Even scientists know this for, the, for a fact. They know that the universe had a beginning. They know, right? That's why they have the Big Ding Theory, right? They know it had a beginning. And they know ultimately it will come to an end. The entire universe, as vast as it is, right, which is beyond our feeble imaginations to comprehend, as complex as, it, as the universe is, with, with its galaxies and clusters and subatomic particles, all of it, every single little bit of it, Jesus says, will pass away. I want you to really lean in here and think with me. The most stable things that you can imagine 
the most stable rocks that you can stand on, the greatest mountains, the deepest oceans, the molecular bonds that hold the entire universe together, all of it is going to be void. We make hyperbolic statements sometimes when we say, well, the world's going to come to an end, but have you even fathomed what that really means? The universe is over 96 billion light years across the part of the universe that we can see. All of it is temporary. It has an expiration date. The entire human experience that you have is within this three-dimensional reality we call the universe. All that you know and understand and experience with your senses is within this three-dimensional space. All of the analogies of how you relate to words and ideas and concepts and how we even communicate with each other is rooted in your experience inside of this universe. And all of that will be gone. It will pass away. Think about this. The rising and the sitting of the sun. An event that has... That has that has taken place daily and has been seen as a sign of surety and constancy and dependability since the fourth day in creation, that rhythm will pass away. In fact, I've even recently used this as an analogy of stability. I said, as sure as the sun comes up in the east and goes down in the west, do you understand that this expression at one point in the future won't even make any sense anymore? At some point in the future, you use that expression. It's like, what are you talking about? How about the, the, the rhythm of some atomic particles? They move with such precision that you can keep time on them. And because of that, then you can organize and orchestrate your life with precision by their movements. All of that will be gone. In fact, time itself won't even exist anymore. As great and vast and awesome and powerful as the forces of the universe are, and they are awesome, because think about E equals MC squared and what that did to plutonium, right? The awesome forces that are beyond our ability to relate to, these forces that we depend on that hold the universe together, that, that as stable as they seem to us in this moment, all of them will cease. They will stop. They will come to an end. Jesus says the heavens and the earth will pass away. But, my words, unlike this vast cosmos, my words will not pass away. I keep saying this, but think about that. Mount Everest will pass away. Jupiter will pass away. The Crab Nebula will pass away. But the words of the Sovereign Lord Jesus Christ will never, ever, 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 ever pass away. Think about the contrast that means the universe is temporal. Christ's word is eternal. The sun's going to fade into darkness, but the light of the word is going to continue to shine. The mountains will tremble and be thrown down, but Jesus' word will continue to remain firm. The galaxies are going to spin off into oblivion, but the word of Christ will remain constant and immovable forever and ever. How great is his creation? 
How much greater then are the words of Christ? Let me be clear. Jesus in this context, he's, what he's saying, he's predicting the entire section, what he's predicting in the entire section of chapter 13. What he's saying in this text is what I'm telling you is going to happen. It's, it's sure to happen. His words are absolutely sure. He says, what's going to come to pass will come to pass. And the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 is absolute proof of that. By the way, the first century church, the second century church, used the fact that Jerusalem fell as an apologetic to prove that Jesus was a prophet. They said, see, he said it was going to fall, and look what happened. So we can count on his words to come true. Just as sure as Jerusalem fell, the, the, the word will also see one day, the world will, will see one day Christ coming in power and glory. We can depend on the fact that he's coming back to judge the world and setting all things right, and he's coming for his people. The promise of Christ's return is more sure than the universe itself. But what Christ is saying here communicates more than just this one truth. It tells us that his words will always exist. His words will always endure. That his words will always be true. His words will never fail. What he is saying by implication is, is the promises of Christ are more sure than the universe itself. Brothers and sisters, let your weary minds rest on that. The promises of Christ are more sure than the sun rising in the east and going down in the west. This is a truth that we need to hold on to. This is the truth we need to believe with all that we have. This is a truth we need to depend on. This is a truth that when all of it falls apart, when the sun fails to shine, when the mountains fail to stand, when the darkness closes in, when there's nothing else in all of creation that makes any sense, the words of Christ, the promises of Christ will never, ever, ever fail. That is a truth that you need to preach to yourself every single day. And I want you to notice the construction that Jesus uses when he says this. He says, my words will not pass away, which is very straightforward to us when we read it in English. But it misses an important aspect in the Greek language. Because Jesus, what he's literally saying, the words of me, or my words, in no way, not, will pass away. That's the literal translation, by the way. My words, in no way, not, will pass away. And I want you to notice the use of the double negative. In English, we don't use double negatives because they cancel each other out and it's just bad grammar. Ask a teacher, right? But in Greek, in the Greek language, double negatives actually create emphasis. So Jesus is not just saying that my words will not pass away. Jesus is saying that it's absolutely impossible for my words to pass away. My words will never, under any circumstances, ever pass away. Jesus is being emphatic about the endurance of his word. And I want you to realize that this is not an, un, this is, this is not an unusual thing for Jesus to say. Like Jesus has used the same double negative construction elsewhere. He does so 
to emphasize different points that he makes at different times. In fact, he uses this expression throughout the Gospels. We don't have time to go through all the details, but I want to share with you a couple of examples of how he uses this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. So if you're in Mark, you just turn back a few pages. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all, until all is accomplished. You see, Jesus uses the same double negative construction here and a similar analogy to establish the fact that God's law endures, that the scriptures endure and are still relevant. He's literally saying here, no, not one iota or dot will pass away. Again, the double negative in grammar that confirms the truth that the law of God does not change. God's word will not change at all until it's accomplished. In fact, heaven and earth will pass away long before God's word ever changes, is the idea. But here's another example I want you to want to show you. Turn with me to John chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 27 and 28. John chapter 10. Verses 27 and 28. It reads... My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. What a beautiful truth by itself. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We can spend all day talking about this one text alone, and what this means for the surety of the believer but I want you to realize Jesus is saying, when he says that they will never perish, he's using this double negative construction again. In fact, literally what he says, word for word is, I give them life eternal and never, not, shall they perish. That's word for word. Jesus is saying is not only will they never perish, but it's absolutely no way for them to ever perish. It is impossible for them to perish what Jesus is saying. Well, why is it impossible for Jesus, why is it impossible for them to perish? Because Christ himself, our sovereign reigning king, is the one who gives them life. And he says it's a life that doesn't end. It's eternal life. By the way, if you can lose eternal life, it's not eternal, right? And then he finishes by with a promise and says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is saying that under no circumstances will anyone who belongs to Christ ever be lost. Take that one to the bank. No one who is in Christ will ever be lost. 
This is the kind of emphasis that Jesus is using in this promise. And I want you to keep in mind that John chapter 10 is Jesus' words, which means these words are a promise. And this promise, like all of his words, will never fail. Unlike the universe, they will never pass away. So no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter what the universe does to us, no matter what happens in in. With, with culture, no matter what happens with our nation, the promise here that we will never be lost will never fade. This promise will never fail. This promise never loses strength. It never stops existing, and it will always be sufficient for us. Jesus' word is more likely to fail than those who trust in him will perish which means God is more likely to stop being God than you lose your salvation. Jesus says, that the, unit, that the world, the heavens and the earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Can you understand the magnitude of what Jesus is saying here? Brothers and sisters, grab a hold of this truth because it will change your life. When the mountains that you have built around your life crumble under your feet, God's promises will still stand. When the storm of life rages and the flood threatens to wash away all the things that you hold dear, God's promises are unbreakable. When the darkness consumes the remaining daylight and the shadows pour over the horizon and threaten to overrun you, the light of God's word will still be your hope and will remain a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. The promises of God are the anchor for your soul. The truths of Christ are the rock underneath your feet. And the hope that you have that Christ loved you and saved you and is coming back for you is the unshakable, immovable object on which you can stand. Hold on to that truth, beloved. Creation will fall into nothing, but God's word, Christ's word, will never fail us. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? Do you rest in that? Let me share with you one more promise that you need to hear today. You need to hear this promise today. One more promise that you must believe and hold on to. And I know that many of your hearts are broken today. I know many of you have your hopes dashed. I know some of you are wondering, how can a sovereign God allow to happen what has happened? I know some of you probably even wonder if there's actually any real hope and if God at times is even there, I know some of you might even be asking, why, Lord? Why? I can't understand. I don't know what's happening. Why can't I overcome the grief that I feel? I know some of you probably feel so broken, so deeply, that it feels like you might not ever be whole ever again. But listen to this immutable promise that God has given through the Apostle Paul. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4.
We'll begin reading in verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Hear the words of this promise. They echo the words of Christ. As the world spins off into a direction that you cannot understand, as our nation runs headlong into self-destruction, as those that we love unexpectedly step off into eternity or are taken from us, as the darkest darkness of our culture invades our lives, the worst as the worst possible scenarios in our lives come to pass, the Word of God, the unbreakable, the unshakable Word of God says that the worst that this world has to offer you in the grand scheme of things will prove ultimately to be light and momentary. That in the moment, we will weep rivers of tears and we will suffer great trials and we will, and it will not feel light and momentarily, but, but at the end... When we finally are able to see, we can look back and see that even the worst of whatever we've gone through, that the worst that has ever happened to us will seem like light momentary affliction to us. Why? Is it because what we're going through is trivial? Is it because what we're going through is unimportant? Is it because what we're going through isn't real suffering? No. Hear me. Your pain and suffering in the eyes of God is not trivial. It's not. Take heart in that. It's not. It's not unimportant. In fact, your pain and suffering has been so important to God that Christ, the, Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to enter into suffering, your suffering. He came to be with us and to suffer with us. And, and more importantly, He came to suffer for us. Your suffering is real. And so was the suffering of Christ. Well, if it's real and it's important and not trivial, then why does it seem, what does it say that it will seem like at one point it's going to be light and momentary? Because hear this. Because God says that all you're going through, all that you experience is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God is doing something in you with that. Remember, God said that all things were together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God works all things for good, all things, even the worst things. God is working in you and through your suffering to produce in you something one day that you will look back and you will see that it's glorious, that God is refining you. He is perfecting you. God, through all of your circumstances in your life, through all the good and all the heartache, He is working in you and changing you and shaping you and molding you 
And he's loving you. And right here, right now, there will be times that it will not make any sense to us. The truth is that you're going to look and you're not going to be able to see what God's doing. And it will feel so painful and it will feel so impossible. And at times you will wonder, is God, are you even there? Are you even faithful? And you'll even worry and wonder, is this just all for nothing? But there will come a day when when either the Lord returns or calls you home to be with him, that you will stand in his glorious presence and the veil will finally be removed from your eyes. And you will finally be free from the influence of sin that clouds your mind and your, and your hearts and your judgment. And you'll be able to see what Paul is saying here is true, that it is light and momentary. And God knew exactly what he was doing. And God did keep his promise and he worked all things out for good for you and for others that love him and even the worst parts of your life you will look back and you will see God's gracious loving hand leading you through the darkness and you will see how God masterfully orchestrated and used everything even the darkest part of your life to graciously grow you and to shape you and to draw you closer to himself and you will see even in the darkest most frightening horrible parts of your life you will see those moments are still riddled with his grace and his mercy And when you finally see it, when you were able to stand and finally see it, you will behold it. You will glorify him for all of it. You will worship him for all of it, the good and the bad. And you will stand and worship him for what he is and who he is. The sovereign Lord of all things who chose out of his will to love you. That's the promise. The irrevocable, immutable, unbreakable, unshakable promise of our Lord. And so as our hearts break, and as the river of tears stream down our face, and as our strength wanes and we grow weak physically, let us take Christ at his word. That the world and all that we see is transient and momentary. But his word and his promises are sure and eternal. We all will stand and face Christ. And one day we will draw our last breath and we will see him face to face. And either by his return or his glorious, gracious call to us to come home, we will see him. And those who are in Christ will hear our master's voice and all of our hopes will be fulfilled. And all that has happened around us will make absolute sense. And we will glorify God for his grace and his mercy and his love and his wisdom. That's the promise that we hold on to. All of creation will disappear like a vapor in the wind. But Christ's promises will always endure. And all we need to do now in this moment is simply believe and trust in what Christ has promised.
to hold on to him in the darkness, to trust in him above all other things. There is a song written by a group called Shane and Shane that has been speaking to my heart that emphasizes the promise that Christ has made in our response to it. And I would like to read it for you. It says, I come, God, I come. I return to the Lord, the one who's broken, the one who's torn me apart. You struck down to bind me up. You say you do it all in love, that I might know you in your suffering. The chorus goes, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. My heart and my flesh may fail. The earth below give way. But with my eyes, with my eyes, I'll see the Lord. Lifted high on that day, behold the lamb that was slain, and I'll know every tear was worth it all. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song for the one who's all I need. Though tonight I'm crying out, let this cup pass from me now. You're still all that I need. You're enough for me. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who is all I need. This world will pass away but Christ's promises will last forever. And he has promised if you trust in him, he will save you from your sins and the wrath of God and the hopelessness that seems to surround us at times. And he promised that the worst parts of your life will be nothing compared to the glory that awaits those who trust in him. And if you are in Christ, rest in that. Rest in that. And if you're not in Christ, then the worst that life has to offer is the very best that you will ever experience. Because all that you have lived for without Christ is vanity. All of your suffering is pointless and meaningless. And even what you might experience here now is temporary. Even the good stuff will be unsatisfying to you. But worse, that you will stand before Christ one day and he will pronounce judgment upon you and your iniquity and you will be cast into everlasting torment. And all you will be able to remember is what you had and the opportunity you had. But there is still hope for those who are not in Christ today. If you draw breath, then life is available to you today. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Turn to Christ in faith and hold on to his irrevocable promises because they are for you. If you will but turn from your sin and trust in him and him alone, he will save you too. It's a promise. And that promise too does not ever fail. Let us pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.